0: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
1: This is Meant to be Eaten, the Gastronomica podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host for today, James Farrer. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our fall 2021 issue on global gastropolitics features articles on taste, ingredients, palates, and power from different times and places. For the next several weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica editorial collective as we talk with authors. My guest this week is Benjamin Schrager, Assistant Professor at Otsonomiya University at the Department of Agricultural Economics. His research examines local food, the meat industry, and disease ecologies. Uh, Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show, Ben.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. All
1: right, so I'm just going to start straight away. Raw chicken. Did you ever try it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I did so um, for my PhD research. I was in Miyazaki Prefecture, um, which is in Kyushu Island and kind of the southwest part of Japan. And uh, initially, I framed my research as like I'm I'm researching about chicken. Uh, Miyazaki Prefecture is a leader for industrial broiler chicken, kind of that most fried chicken would be made from. Um, Most most chicken meat is from, and then also artisan, um, these kind of heirloom, higher quality chicken. But when I got to Miyazaki, people were saying, hey, you're, you're a chicken researcher, so you have to try our local you know, specialty, which is raw chicken, so chicken sashimi or chicken tataki. So I kind of got a crash course in eating it and then later learned that it's not so safe.
1: So, I really want to hear about the safety issue. Maybe before we um, get to that, I was just wonder: did was it good? I mean, is it something that appealed to you? Did you feel, oh my god, I'm eating raw chicken? How did that actually, as an ethnographic, as a, as a new experience, how did that feel for you?
2: Yeah, great, great <laughs> question, James. Um, I mean, I I liked it. Um, and I guess before even getting into the taste, one of the things that's really memorable about eating raw chicken is just that you're doing something that you were raised not to do, right? If I'm from the U.S. and kind of people view raw chicken as one of the most dangerous things, so to all of a sudden be presented with raw chicken as a delicacy was something that uh, was very striking so just doing that in itself was kind of exciting a bit of a daredevil experience um taste wise um you know it's uh kept cold uh to reduce the growth of bacteria but the the textures are really interesting um depending on the cut and depending on how it's cooked and it's served with all sorts of different garnishes so um it's not just uh, soy sauce, but there's also uh, yuzu kosho, um, kind of like a, a, a pepper and citrus garnish. I'm not exactly sure how to describe it, um, but also uh, sesame oil and salt. Um, and yeah, so I, I was enjoying the gastronomic parts of it without really processing the, the risky parts of it.
1: So this is a pretty common food down in um, Kyushu.
2: Then, that... I you know it's interesting. It's there. There are pockets of people that eat it a lot, and I think for some people it just becomes a part of their culinary routine. And for other people, even from the area, you know, they might not encounter it. Um, so I guess that's one of the things that's kind of. Uh, I was in writing about raw chicken if, if someone reads this article they might think everywhere you go in Japan people are serving raw chicken or everywhere in Miyazaki um, but that's not really the case um, but definitely for for some people it's a very standard food to eat right so
1: you were already mentioning this so I, I, I think we'll just go go to that point as well what what's what's the problem with raw chicken then is that is it safe is it something you would recommend
2: <laughs> well right so food risk um, is uh, actually a very complicated topic and I, I think that we kind of uh, often are presented with the idea of food is either being uh, safe or or not safe but Within food risk analysis, usually it's like degrees of risk. So very few things are 100% safe. Um, And then also very few things are like you're always going to get sick when you eat it. Um, So the main problem and the main source of food poisoning from raw chicken comes from campylobacter. Um, which actually I wrote about it in the article. I wasn't even familiar with this term. Um, and I was speaking with a professor who kept saying it and I couldn't recognize it. And I asked him to write it down and then he wrote it down. And then I was like, aha, this is a, a key actor here. I need to better understand. But it's in the digestive tract of animals and uh uh, chicken, and it didn't So, use...
1: just a sec, so bacter it's a bacterium, right?
2: Is that... Cor- correct. Okay. Yeah. So, it's
1: in the... Yeah, so to continue, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah.
2: No, thanks for clarifying. Yeah, so it's in the digestive tract, um, and um, it's very easy uh, for it to contaminate other parts of the meat, and then uh, to grow. Um, it's... And along with more industrial practices, Cambylobacter has become more common. Um, So perhaps 50 years ago, food poisoning from Cambylobacter, especially if it's like a backyard flock uh, and you're eating chicken raw, wouldn't have been as big an issue as it is today. of course, there there is just a lot of uncertainty. How much did Cambylobacter really exist or how much were we just not aware of it? But so on certain cuts, especially liver, um, there tends to be higher levels of Um And so the all of the public health officials who I spoke with, they were very clear. Like, look, our policy is The only way to safely eat chicken is to thoroughly cook it. So we don't recommend anyone eat it raw. Um, And then in Miyazaki prefecture, the officials were kind of like, we don't recommend anyone eat it raw. But if you do persist in eating it raw, here are some guidelines. Um, And so I, uh, (laughs) for me, I don't want to recommend people go out and eat raw chicken. And I think that one of the things I was hoping to do with this article was to just raise awareness about uh, the, the risks of eating raw chicken. I think it's really difficult to understand what's going on with, with these regulations. And I was uh, uh, really happy that Gastronomica agreed to make this article open access so that um, it could be more widely viewed and kind of help to spread a little bit more understanding that actually raw chicken can be prepared in more of a meticulous way, but the oversight, it, it tends to all be like voluntary. Like, we hope you do this, and often when there's big incidences of food poisoning, it seems like places weren't really using uh, the most rigorous hygiene trying to prevent food poisoning.
1: Right. So it's an interesting uh, topic for people, especially, I guess, outside of Japan, because we think of Japan as being a place where, oh, you know, food is very safe. Um, I think maybe a lot of Japanese people also think of Japan as having very strict uh, food safety regulations. Um, do you think that Japanese people are are informed about this, the risk? involved in eating something like raw chicken or, or do they have a cultural understanding of raw chicken that's different than perhaps the one that uh, a food scientist would have?
2: So I think that uh, that's those are really good questions um, and I think it's really regionally specific and based on people's experiences. Um, so there are There were people who I spoke with that mistakenly assumed that raw chicken is safe because it's being served in restaurants. like the kind of logic that, well, if the market permits you to buy it, then it must be safe. Um, And I think that this is further reinforced by kind of like you were alluding to these discourses of Japanese food as being really safe and high quality, and that's emphasized a lot um, uh, in all sorts of aspects of Japan. So um, because it's like a local specialty dish, some people might mistakenly assume that it's uh, especially good for them even. Um, But I did find in Miyazaki, for example, there was this kind of understanding, like, you know, you can get sick from eating it, but it's not such a big deal. So, you know, if that happens to you enough times, then stop eating it. Um, Or like, you know, it'll be over in a few days, but it's worth it because it's so tasty. So there was this kind of folk understanding, which I found in Miyazaki, and I think was kind of missing in other places, such as uh, in the article I write about Shiga Prefecture, which it kind of seems like Shiga Prefecture might be doing a really good job of reporting which um, ironically it makes it look like it's less safe to be eating there
1: so how does that work and they people are just reporting more cases so people think it's um, oh it I, so so they're just a higher caseload
2: yeah well I mean it's it's kind of this situation where um, Lots of people might be getting sick in Miyazaki but not reporting. But then in Shiga Prefecture, if a higher proportion of people that get sick report um, uh, it, then there are more uh, incidents uh, coming from Shiga Prefecture. I guess uh, in the U.S., this is called the Minnesota effect, where Minnesota has really great uh, kind of health surveillance. And so the numbers of incidents are always higher in Minnesota. So kind of when I was digging into these statistics, it was really, you know, I was bumping up against a lot of the stuff that food (coughs) safety experts struggle with, like how sick do you have to be to get sick, to be counted as a statistic, and then how do we figure out how much under-reporting is going on? And so it's very tricky working with those statistics and data although the the Japanese government does release these uh, reports that kind of list every incident and if an incident is linked to a specific establishment or a specific source of food poisoning then that's explained but of course the there's a lot of variation in reporting so sometimes it would just be like izakaya food served there other times it would be like chicken cuisine then other times it would be like Uh, raw chicken liver or chicken tataki so it it was uh, a challenge and also fun kind of working through that data set.
1: So one of the results in your article it seems that actually when you looked at your data you realized that not only was raw chicken possibly uh, dangerous but was actually one of the more dangerous things that people were eating in Japan or am I missing am I mistaking that?
2: That's absolutely right. I mean, I, I kind of uh, was toying with like to to given the high level of uncertainty with food poisoning data, like is it even safe to, is it okay to say that it's like the most the food that poisons the most people in Japan, and I kind of uh, ended up walking that back to say like one of the most dangerous food dishes, but. Um, it, it was really striking to see. And again, it's, it's hard to connect with like how many people are actually getting sick is difficult to know. Um, but one of the things that's uh, had a very big influence is no one has officially died from eating raw chicken. Um, and there was a beef UK incident Um, Beef yuke is like a ground beef um, where uh, a number of people died uh, after eating beef yuke in 2011 at a yakiniku restaurant, so a Korean barbecue-style restaurant. Um, And that created a big backlash against uh, eating raw beef and later raw pork because there was a specific kind of shiga toxin-producing salmonella. Um, and that was identified as an unacceptable risk, and so people shouldn't be eating uh, raw beef or raw pork in the same way that raw chicken is still tolerated.
1: Right, so in in the current situation in Japan, um, all types of raw beef and raw pork are banned, or just certain types of uh, raw beef and raw pork?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've seen it around, haven't you? Some like the raw beef, this or that. So I'm not hundred percent sure of how that works, but I think that the um, the raw liver right. is not permitted.
1: Yeah, well, Le- I think legal,
2: yeah.
1: right? So I, I think in your article, you you talk about the raw liver being banned. You know, and uh, and uh, I guess the reader and people listening to this are maybe. Not, I mean, there's other things, of course, that are eaten raw. Raw horse meat is pretty common down in Kyushu as well, right? That's one of the things that people eat down there.
2: Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> there there are these surveys um, that uh, the this big um, animal meat uh, organization conducts, with, like over a thousand people each year. And for a while, they were like. Now that raw raw beef liver is banned, what are you doing instead? And there are these responses like, oh, you know, a very small percentage, maybe like 2% would be like, We're eat- I'm eating raw chicken instead. Or I'm eating uh, raw horse instead. Or I'm going to Korea. Um, so there is this real demand for eating raw um raw meat raw animal meat and you know one of the challenges that i'm really sympathetic to are these people that run restaurants um they have customers who come in just to eat raw chicken and if they don't serve it then people are going to be going to other restaurants so it's very difficult to to know um, from their perspective, this perspective of people running restaurants, like what they can do. And I have the, a quote in the article from a public health official from Shiga who's saying like, you know, we don't, there are people that would prefer to not be serving this because it's stressful. They're worried they might be getting people sick and they have to be really meticulous. But if they do that, they're, they're not going to be able to stay in business.
1: Right, that's, uh, that's fascinating. So it's, it's, it's also people thinking about not only balancing out public health needs, but consumer preferences, cultural preferences, and also the lives of uh, small businesses. So we're gonna take a, a really short break and we'll be back in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin,
1: Okay, we're back with Ben Schrager talking about his research on chicken. And Ben, I wanted to uh, come on to, you know, just a question of how is it that you got into studying chicken in Japan? So could you tell us a little bit about your pathway into this kind of research and what brought you to this particular project?
2: Yeah, um, well, I, uh, so... My uh, discipline is geography, and I was going to graduate school of University of Hawaii at Manoa um, in the geography department there. And I wanted to research about stuff in Japan. Um, I knew I wanted to do that, but for my masters, uh, I researched about seed corn in Hawaii. Um, And then transitioning to my PhD, um, I wanted to look at big food in Japan. And I'd done a little bit of research on Japan's GM food policy and kind of stumbled across this uh, um, a book by Goto Takuya, who is a professor at Kochi University. Um, and he was writing about uh, Miyazaki Prefecture and some of the animal disease there and um, it really kind of keyed me into all of these cool dimensions about uh, the chicken industry in Japan. And you know, uh, I guess one of the challenges about researching Japan is it's often um, it's often seen as like very different from uh, Western culture. There's this kind of like east-west contrast crops up a lot. And I lived in Japan when I was 12 for about four months, and maybe that has a bit of uh, my orientation towards wanting to research about everyday Japan stuff. And so chicken doesn't really fit in as like an especially Japanese-Japanese thing, although it has very deep roots in Japan. Um, and the kind of growth of chicken really closely corresponds uh, to this kind of influx of uh, grain influx of corporate approaches from the West. Um, so that's kind of what led me towards the topic. And uh, there have been just tons of really cool connections with with different aspects of uh, ecologies and economies in Japan. So I'm, I'm happy I ended up here. I'm not exactly sure how, but... <laughs>
1: Right. So one of the really interesting things about your research is the way in which it brings together like the grain industry, uh, the global supply chains, and also the rise of very what seem to be really local cultures of chicken consumption in Japan. So I was just wondering if you could talk about Miyazaki and its relation to chicken and why, why do we have Miyazaki as sort of a, a place of chicken production and consumption in Japan?
2: yeah um i'm uh that's a great question i lots of there there are lots of different regional specialties throughout japan for chicken um and miyazaki does stand out for having a number of different types of specialty chicken dishes so there is the raw chicken, which I've talked about some. Uh, There's also a sumibiyaki chicken, um, where it's uh, kind of like fried over, uh, grilled um, over charcoal and kind of takes on a grayish hue. Um, And then there's a chicken namban, which is uh, kind of like it's breaded um, and then served with a tartar sauce and also is tangy, um, and that's become popular throughout all of japan chicken namban um, yeah but so what about miyazaki and chicken um, so i guess there's there's two ways to look at it here um one is just kind of like the in in rural miyazaki it was very common to have a flock of chicken and this This isn't necessarily so distinct. I think in many parts of Japan, I was really surprised just statistically how prevalent chickens were. And just chickens as being um, very common in diverse, small farms throughout Japan. Um, That's pretty typical. Um, But this kind of like folk practice of having chicken did persist longer in what was still quite prevalent in Miyazaki. And I think that a lot of the eating raw chicken, at least anecdotally from people I spoke to, that was kind of like a folk rural practice kind of thing, where chickens were often killed for celebratory occasions. Um, And then the, the second part of this is that it's really with the influx of capital corporations that Miyazaki becomes a core for chicken production. So, you know, there are these strong folk practices of raising chickens in all sorts of different parts of Japan, like uh, Aichi Prefecture and Nagoya stands out for having a very long connection to chicken. Uh, But um, what Miyazaki and neighboring Kagoshima Prefecture have in their favor is Shibushi Harbor. Um, and this was a harbor, uh, that was built kind of very close to the border between the two prefectures and it's a main, uh, harbor for importing grain. And because grain is such a leading, uh, expense, uh, for producing chicken, the lower cost of production in Southern Kyushu has really given them, uh, this advantage. And then once you kind of build up, uh, enough of an industry, it's kind of tended to remain in Southern Kyushu. And the one other prefecture is Iwate Prefecture. And between, and that also has some advantages of being close to a port. And between these three prefectures, they've produced about half of all the chicken meat produced in Japan. Um, so I think that helps to give a, a bit of a background uh, on the chicken in Miyazaki, and of course, um, I should add that nearly all of the grain is is imported, and much of it is from the US. and uh, Brazil is also another major source of imports.
1: so So basically, a lot of the when we think of these places now that are known for chicken in Japan, it's not so much that they were these ancient centers of chicken production, but were also really results of, the, of having harbors where you could import then grain more cheaply in these global supply chains from the U.S. and from Brazil. And, um, is that, that, that's maybe how we should look at it. I'm, I, you, one of the other things that you mentioned in the article is a connection between samurai and, uh, <laughs> and chickens. And so what what's this all about the samurai chicken story? Even?
2: Yeah, so I yeah, I think I mentioned this in an uh, article I published in Japanese Studies.
1: Oh, so um, this is a different article. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> no, no, thank anyway, you for But anyway, let's let's for uh, uh, let's, uh, uh, let's talk
1: yeah. a little bit about it though because it's such a fascinating uh, fascinating connection.
2: Yeah, so um, what happened was in the transition from uh, Edo to Meiji era, and I, I, uh, at, at some point, the samurai, which had been kind of like a military class, like insured to be employed as a part of the army, they kind of like lost their rank. Um, they no longer were like guaranteed employment based on that. Um, and Aichi Prefecture was had a lot of former samurai households in this area. Um, and so what ended up happening was uh, a number of samurai decided that chicken was a good industry to get into. Um, and I know it might sound kind of weird now, but back then, uh, 1860s, animal industries were actually quite cutting edge technology. And another big industry was sericulture, so silk. Um, and so these uh, the, the chicken industry really took root in Nagoya in Aichi Prefecture in Japan. Um, and these samurai, former samurai, samurai households were able to invest a lot of capital into like building bigger, more industrial farms and into developing um, devices uh, such as ways to incubators for hatching chicks and also improved breeds. And that's part of the reason why um, Nagoya and Nagoya Kochin is uh, still one of the most famous varieties of chicken in Japan today.
1: Oh, oh, right. So that's that, uh, sort of another piece of the puzzle then. So we have the Nagoya connection with this modernization in the 1860s, and then the Miyazaki and Iwate connections come in uh, later, uh, it seems, when you have these global supply chains emerging and uh, from uh, further away.
2: Yeah, and I guess one of the... The contradictions that's really interesting to me is that um, kind of moving, so with the, the move towards industrial chicken and imported chicken, there's kind of like a uh, move back towards reconnecting with heirloom varieties, more traditional cuisine and, and stuff like that. Uh, but raw chicken, doesn't really mesh well with these new industrial methods. And so people often have these positive associations related to alternative food, but thinking of like it being a local dish, a traditional dish, maybe using heirloom breeds, but it's actually um, a very high risk food.
1: Right, yeah, that's that's a fascinating connection because um... In Japan, people often associate these sort of name-brand chickens with uh, health, right, um, and safety, and so then there's this association of that with eating raw chicken, and, and of course, these these really are uh, are, are really different uh, concepts of what's uh, good and healthy and safe. I am uh, I'm actually, uh, you know, we're we've been like the rest of the world, and uh, since I'm based in Tokyo. As well, I mean, there's been such a shutdown of, of restaurants or slowdowns of restaurants uh, and restaurants have been closed in the evening. So has this really changed this entire industry? Has the chicken industry and uh, the types of restaurants that are serving this type of food been affected by the pandemic? Uh, is there a sort of a pandemic story here or a contagious disease story related to chickens?
2: Um, great question. Uh, well, I guess first, um, so in general, if we're talking about places that are serving raw chicken, they're the types of places that are hurting during the pandemic. Um, and their sales have been down a lot. I mean, raw chicken is often served in bars, izakaya, um, and it, just seems a little bit weird to think of ordering raw chicken without getting a alcoholic drink. <laughs> when I when I posted about about um, a, a thread about this on Twitter, someone's like, Does, "Is there any correlation with drinking to reduce incidence of food poisoning?" I don't don't really know if that's true, but it's kind of they go hand in hand. And as as you've written about, James, it's been really hard on izakaya and restaurants um, through the, the pandemic.
1: Right. And what about bird flu? Isn't that another type of pandemic in Japan related to the chicken industry?
2: Yeah. Um, great question. Yeah. So actually, uh, this past winter um, from uh, 20 to 21 was the worst in Japanese history in terms of avian influenza outbreaks. And almost 10 million chickens were cold. Um, so, there are a lot of interesting parallels here um, between uh, j- just in, in the way that we, we think about disease or food safety, restraint, um, kind of also challenges about how do you estimate how many people are sick, what counts as getting sick, what are the actual numbers. Um, there are definitely some uh, eerie parallels with COVID, um, although uh, it's very distinct because there's not human-to-human transmission of avian influenza or of food poisoning from Campylobacter.
1: Right, That's a, that is a fascinating though, set of parallels at the animal level. Um, uh, with avian influenza epidemic here, um, I'm uh, I'm wondering though uh, as we move on maybe and wrap things up, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you're uh, working on now or what what's your next project? Uh, I know you've moved up to Utsunomiya for a new job. Are you working on something up there?
2: Yeah, well, I've moved up to Utsunomiya University, and um, I'm. Uh, trying to to get to learn a bit more about the local food initiatives up in the area. Um, And I have uh, a few things hanging around about uh, uh, COVID-19 and food systems in Japan that I'm still trying to work through. You know, it's a really challenging time to be researching about food I still haven't been able to go back to Miyazaki. I'd really like to go back there sometime, but it's kind of tricky, especially for rural places to know like when is an appropriate time to to go back there with the, the pandemic and everything.
1: Right, well, um, thank you so much, uh, Ben. I mean, it's been really a, a great conversation. Um, and uh, listeners, you can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, uh, uh, volume 21.3. The title is Risky but Raw on Not Regulating One of the Most High-Risk Dishes in Japan. Uh, and for details on that, visit gastronomica.org. Uh, so, uh, And you can also join us ne- next week as we talk to Aya Kimura, on traditions of Japanese pickles.